Welcome to the Flourishing After Addiction podcast. I'm Carl Eric Fisher, an addiction psychiatrist and bioethicist at Columbia University and a person in recovery. In this podcast, I'm seeking out fresh perspectives in the world of addiction and recovery, exploring some of the most important and fascinating topics in all of psychiatry and philosophy. Along the way, we'll uncover and clarify key lessons that help everyone in working toward flourishing and well-being. To do this, I do deep dive interviews with people working toward flourishing after addiction, people like scientific researchers, artists and writers, spiritual teachers, and more. My ultimate goal is to learn from their experience and wisdom, seeking out practical lessons focused on flourishing and positive change, while still respecting the depth and nuance of these topics. If that sounds interesting to you, head over to my website where I have other resources and materials about addiction and recovery. Sign up for my newsletter, and you'll get a free guide I made about the many paths of recovery. I'll also send you updates about books, research papers, and other things I'm studying and exploring. The email list is the only way to get several of those resources and newsletters, so please do sign up on my website to be in touch. You can find all of that at carlericfisher.com. So first, some housekeeping. Regular listeners of the show will see I took a hiatus from publishing podcasts a few months. I don't think I'm going to organize this show by formal seasons, but you could think of this as season two. I will have to take some breaks here and there. I never want to feel like this is an obligation, and I also don't want to rush out interviews just to have them. My intention is to give you the best, to focus on high-quality interviews with some of the most fascinating people about flourishing. And in fact, I've been interviewing people all along and have some interesting folks in the hopper ready to process and get out to you soon. But to that end, in the coming season, so to speak, we're going to be tightening up the focus a little bit here and focusing on what's suggested in the title of the show, Flourishing After Addiction. I'll always have a foot in things like policy and macro issues. People ask about that related to my book. People care about these issues. It matters to people's individual recovery as well. But I think the focus of the show is is sort of orienting itself toward flourishing as such, how to make sense of the phenomenon of flourishing and recovery, how to help people along the way, practical lessons for change. So keep an eye on the website, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast on your podcast player. And uh, I, I look forward to this next round. But for today, And very much in line with all of that, it's my great pleasure to be speaking with the writer, Buddhist teacher, and person in recovery, Vimala Sara, also known as Valerie Mason John. Vimala Sara co-authored the award-winning book, Eight-Step Recovery, Using the Buddhist Teachings to Overcome Addiction. This is in part a description of their own recovery from addictions, including eating disorders, which we'll discuss they recognize as an addiction. Also, a description of an alternative to 12-step programs, eight-step recovery circles, a mutual help group that is not an opposition to, but an alternative and supplement to traditional 12-step recovery. They're a senior Buddhist teacher in their community and one of the leading African descent voices in the field of mindfulness for addiction. This is a rich one, and we talk about a lot. Vimalasar's personal history, including a history of eating disorders and how they have come to conceptualize bulimia as an addiction, their experience of bulimia as an addiction, but also the bigger picture of a long time working with relapsing on binging and purging of various sorts and practicing recovery through slips, through lapses, through relapses. We also discuss how they make sense of addiction as a person in recovery, as a Buddhist teacher, what is a meaningful conceptualization and way of making sense of addiction, including 
the practice of morality as something that helped them to work with difficult behaviors, not just immediate psychological flexibility or mindfulness, but also uh, practical morality as a path to recovery. We talk also about the dangers of meditation and cautions for people with addiction histories and trauma histories with meditation. And we also talk about their uh, relationship to the big book and to traditional 12-step and a big focus on something that is a long-running theme of this show, respecting a diversity and a pluralistic approach to addiction, many different pathways to recovery. And in particular, Vimalasara discusses how they move through different stages of mutual help recovery, exploring and re-exploring different routes for support, including, of course, their motivation for starting an alternative mutual help recovery community, the eight-step recovery community. So we talk a little bit about what actually happens in eight-step recovery, how to access it, and some bigger picture issues like faith, practice, how to be with difficult feelings. And as a, a bonus, which I'll try to incorporate when I'm talking to spiritual practitioners and teachers, they actually lead us in a practice that you can do. So of course, not while driving or operating heavy machinery, but stay tuned for that as a, as a nice miniature guided meditation. So uh, with all that being said, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Vimala Sara. All right. I'm here with Valerie Mason John. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, of course, it's a pleasure. And just in case some people don't know me by Valerie Mason John, I'm also known as Vimala Sara. Yes, very good. Very good. So I guess on, on all the websites when you're looking for books, it's Valerie Mason John, but also Vimala Sara as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Well, we met ages ago at the Buddhist Recovery Network pre COVID, and I was just so struck by your teachings and your book. And I was especially interested in having you on the show to talk about eating disorders, bulimia, and also all the other, whether you want to call them subtler, or just diverse ways that people engage in addictive behaviors. So usually I start off by asking people about their personal experience of addiction. I'd love to hear about that, especially as it relates to eating for you. Yeah, thank you for that. It's interesting, actually, because I was interviewing Gabor, Gabor Mate, a, a friend of mine and a teacher on psychedelics. As I'm creating a course on psychedelics and exploring psychedelics as a remedy for addiction. And he was talking about in the days of LSD, people thinking they could fly. And I was thinking, oh, my God, Evo stick must have been like a must must have been like a psychedelic because I can remember of that generation kids were all doing Evo stick and I never got into Evo stick because people were doing crazy things with glue and I, that was too crazy for me. But I'd actually say the first drug or addicted drug that I had, well, most probably sugar. I can remember growing up in an orphanage and we'd have pocket money, and on Saturday we managed to get out of the orphanage and go to the sweet shop by us and buy all these sweets. And then we would eat all these sweets within like two or three hours. It'd be really crazy. So definitely I could really see that. But in terms of harder stuff, I was sniffing shoe conditioner 
Yeah, and that was like, I don't know, you might be a bit young for that. Space Invaders, remember the game Space Invaders? I do, a, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, Space Space Invaders. It was a bit like playing Space Invaders when you did that, when you sniffed, mm-hmm. it was called Zopter. So definitely... I mean shoe I, polish, by the way. Sorry, there's like the British... No, okay. it's condition, not shoe polish that you polish, it was shoe conditioner. Uh-huh. So it conditioned your shoes. It was a liquid. So just a really yeah. strong, strong liquid, uh, and you like, put it on a cloth and you sniff uh-huh. it. Yeah, got it. Okay. Yeah. So actually, that's I suppose that was my precursor to to cocaine, most probably. Mm. So definitely for me, I was rec- recreational. Definitely was a clubber in the clubs from a young age, fourteen, fifteen. And I definitely, I would say my core addiction was food. I was diagnosed as an extreme bulimic. Mm. So I had disordered eating was an extreme bulimic, which, which completely terrorized my life. I was completely, I, food controlled me in the sense that I couldn't walk past a bakery without not going in, buying food, eating and purging. So it wasn't just the eating, the purging. And what many people aren't aware of, that actually the purging can be quite addictive too Mm. because actually, well, let's say the binging can be really addictive because when you're in a binge, you're in a completely different world and your whole, everything's altered. I can remember you'd lose balance, you would lose, you you were just in this hypnotic trance. That's what Mm. the binge was like. It was just this hypnotic trance you can imagine it's quite you can't think about anything when i hear people talking about heroin the reason why they take heroin is they just don't think about anything else that's it and that's the same with a binge when you're extreme you're in a binge it's completely hypnotic you're in this trance you don't think about anything else and then the icing on the cake you get to purge which then puts you into a completely different state and lots of people think oh how can that be an addiction? And I'm like, wow. I, there were times when I can remember when I had food lodged in the windpipe, jumping up and down to try and dislodge it, manage, pass out, kind of come through half an hour, 45 minutes later. And what am I doing? I'm back eating more food and purging, eating more food and purging. So, and I was an anorectic bulimic. So there were times when I would completely starve myself. And then I, because I was somebody who was so physically active that the body couldn't cope with that punishment, which would get into the, to the binging and throwing up. So that, and then I would use recreational drugs to give me respite. Mm. Yeah. To give me time off. It, it's like, I just needed to have time off. And, and alcohol wasn't, wasn't my thing. In fact, I, in terms of my recovery, people wanted to think, what did that recovery look like? I had to let go of drinking alcohol. I was social. It was, I was a champagne chartered person. Mm. So, you know, it was like I could take it or leave it. But I knew whenever I drank alcohol, I'd be in the food because alcohol was sugar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if I'd been out and I'd been drinking, I would be in the food. I'd be in the food the next day or the same evening. And for me to get some freedom, well, let's not talk about recovering, because for me, it really is, for me, it's about having freedom, having freedom 
from things that completely control you, completely control what you do. If we talk about Buddhism, we talk about going for refuge, what you place at the centre of your life. Mm-hmm. And actually, and for those of us who have had addictions, our choice of distraction, our choice of substance, our choice of process behaviour is at the centre of our thoughts. And we will, we will condition our life, we will arrange our life around that choice of process behavior or substance or, or distraction. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's no freedom. Mm-hmm. It's not freedom. Yeah. But so the thing that makes it an addiction for you is the control piece, is that you were out of control, you felt like the food was controlling you, somebody was driving your body toward the food, and you couldn't stop even though you were having these awful consequences or maybe do you want to say more about what makes that binge purge cycle an addiction for you well it's interesting that you asked that what is addiction i mean we could go with one of the medical models where we talk about the four c's of addiction and for me you just need one of them really so when we look at the four c's it's the compulsion yeah mm-hmm. the compulsion to use yeah it's and it just keeps on growing. It's, it becomes a compulsive habit. And I want to talk about that because even now today, I'm not bulimic. I don't binge. Sometimes I might eat more than you know what I need to, like normal people, if there is something as normal. And I've, I've had this relationship with raw cashew nuts, okay? So, and that was as, as a bulimic and an anorectic bulimic. When I first started to allow myself to give myself food and keep food down, it was raw cashew nuts and a banana. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I've had this relationship, this soothing, this the sweetness and the soothingness of this. And still, it's like I could buy a small 250 gram bag of cashew nuts. Now, most people could just take a handful and forget about it for a month forget about it in the cupboard for me i'd have a handful then i have to go back i have that i have to go back until it's gone then it'll be done in the day 250 grams isn't a huge amount but that thing of had the compulsion for it so for me it's like i have to work with this at the moment i have freedom from that compulsion it's like i didn't it wasn't so much i had the craving for cashew nuts but definitely this compulsion it was an addictive habit some people say oh that's not much but for me it took away my freedom so in a way for me i'd say one of the aspects of addictive and compulsive behaviors when it takes away our freedom when i think about the buddhist teachings it's about having freedom when i think about people working with psychedelics it's about having more freedom when people go into therapy it's about having more freedom but coming back to the four c's of addiction there is craving so if you have this craving craving for something again if we think of some of those process addictions the craving for love addiction and we know that there has been scientific research saying that The person who has a love addiction, when they think of somebody or when that buzz or the vibration of the phone goes or the ringtone of that person who they're wanting to ring them, the brain releases the same amount of dopamine somebody taking, injecting heroin. Okay, that's how 
strong, yeah, is the brain. So again, this craving. And then another C is the consequences that we continue to use despite the consequences, yeah. And in a way, to me, that's kind of the insanity. There's, to me, there isn't an insanity of addictive and compulsive behaviors. I grew up with adults who were obsessed with madness. And they would talk about the men in the white coats were becoming. They would talk about the first sign of madness was talking to yourself. The second sign of madness was hair growing on your hands and the third on the palm of your hand. And the third sign of madness was looking for them. And I think if adults had told me the first sign of insanity was doing habitually the same thing and hoping for a different result, that would have helped me. It would have completely helped me because there is a real insanity with it. Whether you are addicted to buying CDs back in the day, when I think of Gabramate sort of thing, right? Yeah, and talking about CDs. But, you know, people might think, well, how can that be an addictive behavior? When you're spending over 10 grand in a day, yeah, when you're spending, okay, you've got the money. When he talks about leaving his son, who would have been a minor, in a shopping mall so he could go and look for CDs. That's insanity. Would you do to leave a minor <laughs> and go off? That is insanity. He even talks about he was supposed to be delivering somebody's child and goes off and nips out to the mall to buy CDs. And when he gets back, the baby's been born. There mm-hmm. is an insanity in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is, despite, still went out and shopped despite the negative consequences. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth C is the loss of control. When we have a loss of control. And I, I'd say in that relationship with raw cashew nuts, there's a loss of control because I can't just have four or five and leave it. Some people can. And there are certain today, hallelujah, I can say I can do that. I can have there's food in the freezer. Do you know what I mean? Oh, my God. I could never have been able to have food in the freezer. There's food in the cupboard. I've never been able to have that. And at the same time, there's certain things I just don't have in my house. I don't have cookies. I don't have shit. One of the things I choose to be abstinent from sugar, because I know if I get sugar in my system, there is a loss of control. So sometimes we have to remember that there is a biological impact that if we have certain substances in our system, there can be a loss of control. So how do I define addiction? Really, at the end of the day, it's up to the individual because there are some people who use every day and they have the compulsions, they have the cravings, they have the consequences, they have the loss of control and they will say they don't have an addiction. Yeah. Okay. And who am I? You know, who am I? Who am I to say you have an addiction? For them, they are taking care of their mental states. Yeah. Well, for me, that brings up the notion of suffering. And who am I to say what the nature of somebody else's suffering is and what is the appropriate path for relief? And if that person says, this is the thing that I use to work with my suffering. I don't know. Maybe it is true. That person is, maybe we're not giving them a life that is a better alternative to that pattern of use. But one of the things that struck me, and you mentioned it briefly a little earlier, 
about your story is the need to put something at the center of your life. Mm. The the false refuge of the binging mm. and purging was at the center of your life. And you describe in your book that it took you a while to work with the bulimia. There was some lapses, some relapses, mm. and you had to find something else to put at the center of your life. Of course, that's a big part of Buddhist practice for you. Mm. And specifically what I got, and I'd love to hear more about this, what I got from your story was the morality piece was really important that you had mm. to, it was not just sitting and meditating as if you were training your mind as some atomized individual. It was really practice with morality that helped you to get over the hump, so to speak, of the stickiest parts of your addictive behaviors. Is that right? Because I'd love to hear more about the morality practice and how that works for you. Sure. Yeah, there was a lot in what you said. So, so thank you. So there's a couple of things I want to, I'm going to come back to that question, the, the morality sure. piece. And I just really want to come back to this thing of medicine, because actually for me, the food was my medicine. And actually it's really interesting. We have bad medicine. We have good medicine. Psychedelics all of a sudden has become the good medicine and everything else is the bad medicine. And it's all medicine. It's people trying to take care of their maladies, people wanting to be able to get up in the morning, people taking care of the pain, soothing themselves, the way of soothing themselves. When it comes to morality, the first thing I want to say is to your listeners is that I got my recovery in the rooms of meditation, okay, in the rooms of Buddhism, in the rooms of meditation. That's where I got my recovery. And a lot of us, we did it quietly, <laughs> Yeah. That's where we got. I didn't go to a 12-step program, etc. It was there. And actually, I would definitely, I can remember in my Buddhist lineage, we can become mitras, which means a friend. And back in the day then, it was really quite hard to become a mitra. And to become a mitra, you took on the five lay precepts, abstaining from killing, harming life, abstaining from taking the not given, abstaining from sexual misconduct, abstaining from false speech, and abstaining from taking intoxicants. And just in, not intoxicants that cloud the mind, just basically abstaining from taking intoxicants. When I think of the big book and it says the mind is so cunning, I think definitely in, in the Buddhist teachings, it's almost like, oh yeah, just the ones that cloud the mind, but actually abstaining from taking intoxicants. So, and I can remember a friend saying, how did you become a mitra? You still take intoxicants, but I was working with them. And I would say that actually... In my tradition, how the mind is so cunning. Often when you hear in my lineage, in a true Atma lineage, you don't hear people talking about the, I don't want to call them negative because I think they're really positive, but we talk about the negative precepts and the positive precepts. And we know in many Buddhist traditions, traditionally the negative precepts were the ones, but many Western teachers created the positive precepts because it was hard for westerners to to stomach the negative ones but i hate in buddhism it's non-dual there isn't negative there isn't positive but so basically it's the deeds of loving kindness i purify my mind with open-handed generosity i with deeds of loving kindness i purify my body with open-handed generosity i purify my body with stillness simplicity and contentment i purify my body with truthful communication i purify my speech and with mindfulness clear and radiant i purify my mind so these were the ones that you would say and one day i woke up i thought 
these are so lovely and flowery. And I would be sitting at my shrine saying these lovely flowery things, but nothing much was happening. And I was still taking intoxicants. And I thought, how about saying the negative version of these? How about doing them as couplets? I undertake to stain from harm in life with deeds of love and kindness appear from my body. How about I do them together? And something changed. It was almost like overnight that my experience of taking intoxicants was never, ever the same. So it was cumulative. It was that definitely taking on an ethical ethical practice because we know what we do in the now impacts the next now. I mean, that's not rocket science. It's like if I pick up, if I pick up my choice of substance, my process behavior, my distraction, it's going to impact the next moment. Yeah. So definitely becoming aware of that, definitely looking at what I place at the center of my mandala, at the center of my life. And also it was hard. I was a chronic relapser and I can remember every time I, and this was interesting when I was writing the book, when I was writing the book, I, I'd let go of, well, I'd say that my disordered eating is in remission. Let's say, just say that I always think my addictive behaviors are in remission and definitely in remission. I was writing the book, but I can remember working on that chapter of relapse and thinking, what was it? Why did I keep on relapsing? Why did I keep on picking up? And because in that moment, I chose my choice of distraction over abstinence or over harm reduction. Every time I was picking up, I was choosing in that moment the choice of distraction. And one has to really get real about that, that anybody who is really working at, at recovering and you may really want it, it's like you really do want it. And in that moment that you pick up, you're choosing that behavior. You're choosing that in the moment. And so, you know, what we have to do in the next moment is choose something different. And for me, Really, I had to have something more, something that was going to motivate me, inspire me, something more than my true choice of compulsive behaviors. It was easy, easier to let go of the recreational drug use. That was easy. I wanted my mind back. I realized that my mind had been really impacted by some of those recreational drugs. I knew and I really wanted my mind back. I never got the mind that I used to have, but I got something back. So that was it. It was like, you know what? It's like, I got to stop. But with the food, that was, that, that was different. And actually what it was, I was performing. I was doing a one-woman show. I'd been in, I'd been in Italy. I'd been in Italy visiting. I was in a romantic relationship with a couple of people out there. And being, I was in a monastery, whatever, and been out there very decadent. Didn't have to pay for trips. One of them worked for Virgin. And so he would fly me in, fly me out, blah, blah, blah. And I got back and I was still, and I'd actually had some specific treatment. And I'd say that anybody who's working with compulsive behaviors, addictive behaviors, it's really important to go to people who know, know about the dis-ease you have, know about that addictive behavior because they know the tricks, they know the games. And so I had really specific treatment and I remember thinking, if this doesn't work, what next? And I let go of everything. I let go of therapy, I let go of everything. I got back 
and I had this show and I was like, how am I going to do this show? I had to speak for one hour on stage. How, you know, when you're purging, it, it wrecks the throat. And I just thought, I can't do this. But posters had gone up on the tubes. So I was all over the tube, blah, blah, blah. When I was living in England, you know, this famous looking person that was a reference to Lady Diana image. It was like, wow. <laughs> and I woke up in my bed and it was like, how can I do it? And it's a voice just said, well, you can. And it was like, how? Just stop. And I stopped. That was it. It was like, I wanted to do that show more than that. And I just stopped. And, you know, what I say is uh, really what I see now is definitely with my re relationship with cashew nuts, which, you know, isn't a huge thing. And it has taken away freedom that you just have to keep on coming back in the rooms of my partner is in the 12 steps. I always call my partner. She's a big book thumper. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's like if you keep on coming back, you know, it works if you work it and you're worth it. And I can really see definitely I kept on picking myself back up. As I say, when I, one day it's like, okay, I'm not going to drink anymore. <laughs> no big deal. Okay, I'm not going to take any more recreation drugs. No big deal. But this was a big deal and I had to keep on picking myself back up. And there was a momentum, not aware, a momentum. And at some point, I was able to stop. So it was cumulative, a moral practice, an ethical practice, really placing different things at the centre of my life. The meditation was definitely about... Reg this is another thing that I would say, one of the reasons why people chronically relapse is because the central nervous system is completely out of whack. And what Samatha practices do, meditations to calm the mind, is to calm the central nervous system, is to calm the vagus nerve. Yeah. And that is so important to get some regulation because, you know, if you're completely out of control with your behaviors, you're completely dysregulated how we're trying to regulate ourselves that's the koan as we would say in buddhism you're trying to regulate yourself but actually you're perpetually dysregulated that's all really evocative all the different dimensions of your recovery and how hard you worked and i know how hard it is to take the path of meditation when you're feeling dysregulated and when you're feeling like there's so much war inside of you and it's also interesting to me that you mentioned your partner is a big book thumper in AA. And you said you got sober in the rooms of meditation. You started a sort of, I don't even know if you'd use the word alternative, but you started a group called Eight Step Recovery. So what is your, what's your relationship to 12-step recovery? Well, I met my partner in recovery. So basically, I, when I moved to Canada... I lost my Buddhist community. My Buddhist community was on the doorstep. What was I going to have? I moved to Canada. I moved to, God, Edmonton, one of the coldest places. I don't live in Edmonton anymore. And I realized that I needed some support. So I sat with the Shambhala, which was, and I just thought, well, why don't I? My partner was in 12 steps, so it was very much under my nose. Why don't I seek out? a 12-step program for food. And I had tried it when I was in England. There was one called FA, food addiction. Forget it. It was like you had to have 30 days, something like 30 days abstinence of binging or purging before you could even talk at a meeting. 
Mm. Well, one of the reasons why people have disordered eating is because they've been gagged. It's because they can't talk. So forget that. And then I, I kind of went into the rooms of AA and it's like, there's all these cookies and cakes and everything <laughs> around. So forget that. But anyway, she was in, in touch with the wider community. And so I went to OA and it gave me community. I think that's another thing. It's important to have community. So I was, I came to Canada. I, did, I only knew one person who I'd met briefly. It was only my partner that I knew I needed community. And definitely the Overeaters Anonymous gave me community, definitely gave me community. And I worked a series of steps. So I'd say in a way that actually it really, I did it save my life in a way. When you move, I knew I was at risk. Mm -hmm. I was at risk and that definitely supported me. Yeah. And, but now I live in Vancouver, I'm in my Buddhist community etc yeah right. it sounds like you were at least at risk regarding your spiritual and emotional sobriety yeah i think i would say i was did you say at least at risk at least i was yeah at least i was at risk of binging moving uh, to a new country uh, so it was that i was, was that yeah i was at precarious. risk the, i knew definitely that i need yeah definitely mm. I, I think i could remember it was eight or nine months of living in a new country. This was about maybe 18 years ago thinking, oh my God, you still take the same crap with you. So it was blissful. And then it was like, you know what, actually, because my partner was working away from home and living in a place where it's like eight months of snow and whatever. I did have a job. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that, about the relationship to 12-step, because as you know better than me, you've been very involved in the Buddhist Recovery Network, there's a lot of diversity there. Some people gravitate toward Buddhist groups or other alternative groups, whether it's smart recovery or life ring or whatever. Some people migrate to those alternatives because they have some problem or some resistance or some aversion to 12-step fellowship. And then other people don't see it as an either or and say, oh, this is a complimentary thing. And I just like getting different messages from different places. And I just thought it was important to highlight that even though you started an alternative group, you started eight-step recovery, it's not because you think 12-step is bad or it's a wrong answer. It sounds more like you wanted many flowers to bloom. Is that right? Well, what I, what I would say is I can remember training in adult education and all of a sudden it's like there were different types of learners. There were kinesthetic learners, there were emotional learners. <laughs> and And so, again, there are different types of learners and 12 steps isn't going to work for everybody, just like psychedelics isn't going to work for everybody, just like Buddhist recovery isn't going to work for everybody. And I think what is so wonderful in 2023 is that the door has opened up to different possibilities of recovery because once upon a time it was 12 steps or the sanatorium okay mm -hmm. that was all we had yeah which was fantastic we had something yeah and what we've seen over the past 15 years are different alternatives because 12 steps doesn't work for everybody, of course. And 
what I want to say is actually it was difficult. I'm telling you, I had some threats, some threats writing the book, Eight Step Recovery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some horrible threats, even from in my own Buddhist community who were 12 step people. It's like, how dare you're destroying the 12 step movement. You can't do this because people were so tight. I could understand that was the thing that had helped them you know, recover, help them get their sanity back. And it was like, it was a complete no go. And I have to really quote Kevin Griffin here, a friend of mine, Kevin, who really, I think, really helped. He was the one who really popularized Buddhism to the 12-step community with his brilliant books. I think I can't, he's, I can't remember. One breath it. at a time. One breath at a time. Does a Recovering joy. Yeah, yeah, we love Kevin. Friend of the podcast was one of our first yeah, yeah. guests. Yeah. He's great. He really, because he's a strong 12-step person. And yet he's a Buddhist as well. And marrying those two together. So really do have to thank Kevin in terms of Buddhism, bringing Buddhism into the field of recovery. Of course, there are Christian, there there are Christian programs, there's a smart recovery. There's all these different types of recovery that have been springing up over the past 15 or 20 years. So for me, I would say that with the eight steps, we often say that actually we've just given you eight more steps for your your step of having a closer relationship to God and a higher power. And actually, this is something that can be complementary to your recovery. For some people, this is their core. This is their core recovery. And it's still new. And actually, I want to say that the eight-step recovery isn't like we're reinventing the wheel. In fact, meeting, definitely the 12 steps gave a template for meetings. And we know those meetings are really successful. We know people sharing, people telling their stories. It's so successful. If we think about trauma, trauma, if we have addictions, we have trauma. Often that trauma has been brought about because there was nobody to speak to, nobody to tell your story. And so the rooms of 12 Step gave that space for people to tell your story. So again, in the rooms of 8 Step Recovery, you have the opportunity to be able to tell your story. So in a way, I just think that the more, the merrier. And for some people, it may be people a, a bit like a bee, aren't they? They're kind of hopping from one to the one and seeing where they can get the honey and the nectar. People are exploring. And at the end of the day, people have to take certain agency over their recovery. When I work with people, it's at the moment I have somebody who, who I'm working with and it's disordered eating. And I would always ask people, do you drink? Are you drinking alcohol? You might have to think about letting go of the alcohol. People want to hold on tightly. I'm not an alcoholic. I say, well, let's see if it works for you. It's going to work. And rather than just say, this is what you've got to do. And people can see for themselves. I've had it. When they keep on drinking, they realize they keep on picking up, keep on binging. What are you going to do if you really want this recovery? What are you going to do? Because I can't tell you what to do. I can open the door and actually see where you're falling, but you've really got to see it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great to hear about 8-step recovery. I have to confess, I haven't been to a meeting. It's interesting. And I'm wondering maybe for the listeners curious about all of these diverse offerings, what is it about that 
meeting structure that's different? Is it something about the structure? Is it a practice or is it literature? What, what would somebody expect if they were considering going to one of those meetings? Well, there's definitely literature. We say the steps together. We do our moral inventory are the five lay precepts that I recited earlier. And we explore a step. And what I want to say is we have to remember that the founder of 12 Steps, Bill, basically there's some literature where he says that the Buddhist teachings, I can't remember the exact quote now, but the Buddhist teachings, the Eight Noble Path, was critical to the 12 Steps. Yeah. And I have to, I can't remember, it's in, in the literature, what, but definitely in the 50s, he is quoting the Buddhist teachings and quoting the Noble Fold Eight Path as being part of recovery in the 12-step community. And the Noble Eightfold Path is part of the recovery in the Buddhist teachings. And what I want to say is that as far as I'm concerned, that the oldest recovery program that we know of to date, the oldest therapeutic program that we know of to date are the Buddhist teachings. Okay. All right. They basically, when we think of the Buddha's first discourse, his first discourse is talking to addictive behaviors. He says there, there is addiction to hedonism, which is lowly, coarse, and unprofitable. Yeah. And there is addiction to self-mortification, which is also lowly, coarse, and unprofitable. And we have to find the middle way. Basically, the Buddha was knew part of the human condition was about addictive behaviors. So in a way, for me, it's it makes total sense that we really pull from the Buddhist teachings as a recovery program. Monks in Thailand, monks in Burma, monks in India have been using the Buddhist teachings to help people recover from alcoholism and other drugs. Yeah, This isn't something new. This has been happening for years. It's just in the West, it's like, okay, all right, because the dominance was 12 steps and the dominance, you know, it's a Christian religion. But actually, this isn't anything new. The Buddhist teachings to help people recover from addictive and compulsive behaviors have been used for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm. Yeah, I found the quote. I love that quote. And I had to look it up myself, but I'll just, I'll read a part of it because I think you nailed it. The, it's from a pamphlet from Akron edited by Dr. Bob, and it says, consider the eight-part program laid down in Buddhism, and I won't read the whole eightfold path, but things like right view, right Mm -hmm. aim, right speech, Mm -hmm. etc. The Buddhist philosophy as exemplified by these eight points could be literally adopted by AA as a substitute for or addition to the 12 step. Generosity, universal love, and welfare of others rather than considerations of self are basic to Buddhism. And so, Exactly, that there's a sort of call for syncretism or a proposal that there's a universality behind all of these mm. 
pathways to flourishing mm. and sobriety mm. and recovery, just many different fingers pointing at the same moon. Is mm. that right? Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. It's part of our literature. That's mm. great. That's really great. So in terms of practices too, I was wondering, you were talking before about being dysregulated and your own experience and what you've observed and what you've taught as a Buddhist teacher about using meditation practices for helping to regulate oneself. And I couldn't agree with that more. And of course, many people who are struggling with active addiction in all its forms have a lot of trouble. And yeah, I see over and over again, people might go towards something like headspace or calm, and then mm. they get the instruction to just sit with bare mindfulness. And that can be very difficult. It can certainly be difficult outside of a community, but also in terms of practices, I think sometimes people need a little more help turning toward discomfort and being mm. with discomfort. Mm. It's hard, especially in like an app, it's hard to escape the notion mm. that you're doing the thing to get rid of the suffering. And I'd love to hear any thoughts about that. And I'd also love if you're open to it, if there's any sort of practice or a brief meditation we might do together on that sure. theme. Yeah. Thank you for speaking to meditation. I think we have to remember that meditation can activate PTSD. Meditation can be quite traumatic for some people because of the experiences they've had in the past. When we meditate, stuff from the past, from the unconscious can actually come to the surface. So when people say, hey, sit down, do half an hour meditation, we really have to think about that, this thing of being trauma-informed. And especially if, if somebody, you know, has been living a life of chronic alcohol use or chronic drug use, for them to be able to sit quiet for more than five minutes is going to be really hard. And I'd say on Insight Timer, I actually do have meditation specifically for people with addictions where there's calming music underneath, actually, for people who are really new. One of the practices that we do have in the eight-step meeting is a practice called age. And, and so I'll just take us through it. It's a very short practice. So... A stands for awareness, just simply becoming aware of the body. And we become aware of the body by perhaps noticing if there's tension in the body, if there's agitation in the body, or perhaps if there's expansion in the body, just simply noticing the body. And you can take that practice deeper if you want by noticing what the body is touching, noticing clothing, touching the body. So simply becoming aware of the body. And if we're able to, is to become aware of what we're feeling right now, the emotions, what emotions are rising. Aware of any thoughts. G stands for gathering the breath. And we gather the breath to interrupt some of the thinking that can spiral us into addictive behaviors. So we gather the breath, perhaps by feeling the breath rising and falling in the abdomen, 
If you are a meditation practitioner, you might want to gather the breath on the upper lip and inside the nostril. When we breathe in, it's cool. When we breathe out, it's warmer. And if gathering the breath and being in touch with the breath is a bit threatening or activating, just become aware of sounds, gather the sounds, notice the sounds in the room. Yeah. Okay. And then E stands for expanding. So we're always breathing. So just inviting you to take a deep breath in and expanding the breath throughout the whole body. One more time, taking a deep breath in and expanding the breathing throughout the whole body. And so we can do this when we're going about our day and perhaps we've been activated, we've been triggered. And we could just use one of them. We could just simply let me become aware of the body or aware of sounds in the room or aware of smells in the room. Or we could just say, let me gather the breath. Let me get in touch with the breathing, the stomach moving up and down or on the upper lip. Or we could just simply say, let me just expand the breath. Let me just take a breath in, a deep breath in and expand it throughout the whole body. And what this does is it can interrupt the flow of that stinking thinking we have, the flow of the thoughts that can come when we're triggered, and actually can interrupt the flow of us picking up. Yeah. So the practice is called age. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing it. It's really useful. I feel great. And I think a really easily deployable, good to easy to remember and easy to practice in occasions small and and large throughout the day. So thanks for sharing that. I want to be respectful of your time, and I also want to make sure I give you an opportunity to share any sort of final thoughts or requests of the audience or any other parting words that that you might have today. Well, first, I'd say. Don't give up. It is having addictive and compulsive behaviors that you really want to stop, that you really want to put to bed, and you're struggling to do so. It's painful, it's hard. And I just really want to acknowledge that and really resonate with just how hard it is to get freedom. And just to remember not to give up. And if you're trying something and it doesn't work, try something different. Yeah, you don't have to keep on beating your head on the wall. I'm trying, this isn't working. It means try something different. Yeah, listen to yourself. It's not working. Try something different. And I have a new book coming out next year. I'm working on it called The First Aid Kit for the Mind. So really do look at that. It's a pocketbook. And my publishers really wanted me to really create a pocketbook to help people working with addictive behaviors, but just working with the malady of the mind. 
So yeah, it's a first aid kit. So really looking forward to that coming out into the world. And just Carl, thank you for having this podcast because I know podcasts save people's lives. This is their community. So thank you for taking the time to do podcasts because it takes time. Well, thank you. I mean, thank you for all of your work, all of the offerings that you've put out into the world, this new book and so many other books. I'll be sure to link to those retreats and the day-long retreat that you're doing online in the show notes in the podcast and also just to your website so people can learn more about you. So I hope people do check that out. But thanks for all that you've done in Eight Step Recovery and the Buddhist Recovery Network and otherwise just to to meet people where they are and to provide so many different beautiful opportunities for engaging with working with our minds and working with our suffering. So it's really great to see you again. And, and thanks again for coming on. Thank you for having me. Okay. That's my interview with Vimala Sara. I hope you enjoyed it. As we discussed, I've known Vimalasara for years through the Buddhist Recovery Network and otherwise. I found it a really fascinating and useful and interesting group of a variety of different approaches to Buddhist recovery. So I, I do recommend checking it out in general and 8-Step Recovery in particular. I will link to those things in the show notes, her book on 8-Step Recovery her practice and groups and so forth and so on. She also mentioned some somewhat heady topics that maybe are not as familiar to people who are not situated in a Buddhist community, things like practicing with the negative and positive precepts as part of ethical practice. So I'll, I'll link to some general material on that in the show notes. She also mentioned Kevin Griffin, friend of the pod, and one of the very first interviews I did on this podcast. So I'll link to his episode, which was also a lovely discussion of Buddhist recovery and the nature of the 12 steps and relationships to 12-step recovery. And finally, please remember her practice. If you didn't get the chance to practice it on this listen, bookmark it and keep it in mind. It's a really lovely on-the-fly meditation, awareness of body, gathering the breath, and expanding the breath through the whole body. If you haven't had the chance again, it's good to do at some point. And finally, I'll leave you once again with her beautiful parting words. Don't give up. It's hard to get freedom. Keep trying. So once again, you can find all that information in the show notes over at carlericfisher.com. Vim Lissara said that podcasts save lives and that this is a community, and I really believe that. It's a lovely note to re-enter the publication schedule here. I found this just a beautiful way to keep in touch and keep in community. I've so enjoyed hearing from all of you, people who wrote, wrote in over email or social media. It really helps me in guiding this project and uh, zeroing in on not just what's most interesting, but what's most useful and impactful to your lives. So even though I can't promise I'll always write back, I read everything that you send me and I love hearing from you. So you know, please feel free to drop me a note, what you're looking for, what's helpful, and what's not. Check my website for all of that. You can sign up for my email list to immediately get a free guide I made about the many pathways to recovery. You'll also stay up to date with the latest episodes, show notes, and other writings. Once again, carlericfisher.com. And finally, if you like this show, please pop over to whatever your podcast player is, whatever you're listening on now, and give me a rating and review. You can hit subscribe as well, so the next episode automatically downloads. And this helps other listeners find the show. So thanks so much for everything. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll talk to you again soon. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. 
It isn't medical or clinical advice. The content is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have questions, please consult a medical professional. Conflicts of interest are an important topic in addiction recovery. For now, this project is just me bringing you these conversations ad-free for their own sake. I do have a list of disclosures about my work and positions on my website, which I will keep updated. <laughs>